So we're continuing in our study, our series on the book of Acts. And last week, we, we looked at what the early church was up to. And if you remember, there was, this, there was this remarkable growth following Peter's Pentecost sermon where about 3,000 joined the church. Quite remarkable. But even more remarkable, this booming church with all these new people, can you believe it? They got on the same page right away. All were devoted to those, those four habits that we looked at last week, right? The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Four, four things that we can des- describe as, as kind of ordinary, right? And there's nothing, not looking down on the ordinary, nothing wrong with the ordinary, Most of our time, even living in this beautiful place, most of our time is spent doing ordinary things, right? Growing, developing as a Christian largely takes place by just doing ordinary things, reading your Bible, praying, you worship with, you serve in the church. And so as Luke is describing in our passage last week, as he's describing this ordinary life of the church, he reports that. It's almost like he, he just slips it in. He reports that many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Right? They weren't juggling. It was more than that. Right? And so if last week's passage was about the ordinary, right? our passage this morning is about the extraordinary. It's about the miraculous. Right? What we're going to look at is a detailed account of one of those wonders and signs. A man, lame from birth, walks. And this this miracle, like all miracles in the Bible, isn't simply just a, a naked demonstration of power. When it comes to this miracle, every miracle, we want to know, okay, why is it here? What's it telling us? And what I want to show you is that this miracle is here to do four things. It's here to confirm, it's here to comfort, it's here to convict, and it's here to call us. So this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 3, focusing on verses 1 to 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. The ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him 
as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You know, one of our, one of our main worries today with our personal information so easily accessible, and as much as we tell ourselves it's not, it is, right? One of our great worries is someone wrongly using our names, right? Misrepresenting us, right? It's why we guard our names, right? It's, it's why we speak up when someone misconstrues our words or doesn't represent us accurately. And so right now, how many people are you comfortable with representing you, right? If you're married, it better be at least one, right? How many people are you comfortable expressing your views on things, making decisions on your behalf? Because we know even those who know us well can get things wrong. Just this past week, I was talking with my mom. We've known each other for quite a while, and she corrected me after I finished explaining to her her position on something, right? Don't we love it when people speak for us? I'm pretty sure that's what my wife was most looking forward to by marrying me. But you notice in our passage, you notice in our passage, that's exactly what happens, right? Someone speaks for another person, right? Peter speaks on behalf of Jesus, Right, look again at how the miracle is performed in verse 6. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Peter says, rise up and walk. Right, Peter doesn't misrepresent Jesus. Right, he's not wrongly using his name. And we know that because the man, the man walks. And so two things are confirmed for us. For one, it's confirmation that Jesus' ministry isn't over. The book of Acts begins with Jesus being exalted, lifted up to heaven. Well, his exaltation wasn't his retirement. Jesus wasn't lifted up to heaven so he could collect seashells for all eternity. What Jesus did as he walked the earth, this Miracle tells the apostles, well, that Jesus just continues to do those things from heaven. So if you look back at how Luke begins this book, right, he's, writing, he's writing to this man named Theophilus. And Luke says that in his first book, his gospel, he says he dealt with all that Jesus began, began to do and teach. Right? And so the implication is that Jesus hasn't stopped. Luke's second book is just picking up where Jesus left off. And this miracle also confirms, right, the apostles are where we find the continuation of Jesus' ministry. Right? They're the ones who can, who can act and, and speak and, and teach on on his behalf, right? So Peter wasn't committing any kind of, of identity fraud here. 
right? The miracle is God's confirmation that the ministry of Jesus lives on in these representatives. You know, we might today, we might give the last four digits of our social security number to prove our identity, right? Way more impressive than that, right? Jesus heals this man to show us that Peter and the other apostles, they stand in his place. And you think about how did, how did Jesus' miracles work? What was their purpose? Well, one of their main purposes was, was to confirm his identity as the Son of God, the Messiah. You know, there's that place where John the Baptist sends sends messengers, he sends, he sends people to Jesus to ask, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus tells those people, go back to John and tell him, look at the miracles. The blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised. Right? This miracle, it's just working in a similar way. Right? It confirms the apostles' identity as these authorized representatives. And now with that authority, right, with with the permission, the backing to represent Jesus, right, we know the apostles had the authority to perform signs and wonders, right, and they had the authority to teach and to preach in Christ's name. I think those were the the two aspects of of Jesus' ministry, He healed and he taught. And so an important question for us is, is how did the apostles, how did they think about those two things? Right, was one more central and primary? Right, did they think that one would be more enduring as the church lived on? I think the answer is is yes. You notice the miracle, as we see in verse 10, it filled people with wonder and amazement. And wonder and amazement might be what you're after. That might be the end goal if you're, I don't know, if you're running the circus or something. But the trouble is, the trouble is no one is saved by simply being amazed. And so for Jesus and now for the apostles, the better response, the thing that they were after, was faith. Right? And faith comes through hearing. Comes through hearing the word of Christ. And so miracles can lend credence to the message. They can, they can support the message. But miracles aren't a substitute for the word. The word was and is the main thing for the church. And that's why, as we'll see next week, on the heels of this miracle, where people were filled with wonder and amazement, Peter does what he did at Pentecost. To those struggling to, to comprehend and make sense of this miracle, Peter steps up, And he preaches Christ from the scriptures. And he calls for people to repent and believe. 
And maybe you think that's a little dry. Well, just preaching. That's not very exciting. But don't think that preaching is void of the miraculous. Now, do you remember what happened after Peter's Pentecost sermon? Luke tells us that those who heard the word, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. What is that? That's a miracle. Right? Stubborn, rebellious, cold human hearts like ours were softened to the gospel. And thousands repented and believed in the name of Christ. Right, friends, if you have faith in Christ, if your heart has been softened to him, if you find a desire within you to know him, right, to honor him, a miracle has taken place in your life. Right? Don't think a powerful healing hasn't occurred. Right? Friends, this miracle confirms the apostles speak the authorized message about Christ. This miracle is here to validate the message. And today, as the church, we shouldn't be closed off to the miraculous. Right? God continues and is able to do the miraculous. But our primary focus, right, where we find our chief confirmation that we stand in line with the apostles is in seeing the miracle of men and women hearing the gospel, responding to the gospel, growing in the gospel. Right, this miracle is here to confirm. It's also... It's here to comfort. And so look again at verse 2. Luke tells us the man was, was lame from birth, literally from the womb. And then Luke tells us in the next chapter, we learn that this man was more than 40 years old. That's more than 40 years of never walking, never standing on your own feet. It's more than 40 years of having to be cared for by other people. <clears throat> Think about all those years, his existence amounted to being carried to the gates of the temple to ask for alms of those who walked past him. This man's parents never saw him take his first steps. He never got to run around with his friends in the neighborhood. You think about what little privacy this grown man would have had. Right? He would have required assistance to clean himself, to use the bathroom. Right? He, he intensely suffered for 40 years. We look at that and we ask, God, what do you think of this kind of suffering? We want to know, God, what are you ultimately going to do 
with all of our suffering, with all of our diseases and all of our afflictions. That's what this miracle is here to do. It's like a note dropped in from the future, addressed to all of us that one day, all of our suffering, all of our pain, every discomfort is going to be rolled back. Right? This is a little picture of what God is going to do on a cosmic scale. No more car accidents. Right? No more heart attacks. No more Alzheimer's. No more blindness. No more paralysis. No more, dis- no more cancer. Right? That's what's going to happen. Right? But knowing that God has both the power, and we see in this passage, the willingness to take away suffering, it raises a question. Why did this man have to wait 40 years to be healed? And I don't know. Right? There's no easy answer to that question. But what I find amazing is that after Peter raises him up, for the first time that he can walk, for the first time that he can stand on his own, he doesn't turn to God and ask, why did you let me suffer for so long? He doesn't say, why did I get to enjoy my legs as a child? He never says, do you know how hard life has been for me? It's speculation, but I'm confident that there was no one in the temple that day filled with more praise and more joy. You see, suffering threatens what we naturally love, the things we enjoy. Right? There's nothing wrong or shameful about enjoying our legs, our eyes, our health, our strength, relationships. We praise God for those gifts. But what we struggle to understand, what we struggle to believe is that when suffering, right, when these good things are taken away from us, we struggle to see We struggle to believe that God is working. That he is preparing us to leap one day. Right? To leap like we never have before. You see, that day in the temple, the happiest man, the man filled with the loudest praise, it wasn't the man who had been walking for 40 years. It was the man who spent the last 40 years on the ground. Friends, if you want to leap, if you want a deeper joy in God, I'm not saying that we chase suffering, but don't be surprised when God brings you low. Right? We can be low, we can endure suffering. Because we have this comfort 
this confidence and this assurance in knowing that what God has prepared for us, it's an eternity of leaping and praising. And so this miracle is here to comfort, but it's also here to convict. You notice the man expected to receive from Peter and John what he always received, right? He expected to get from them what he got the day before and what he got last week and the prior year. But Peter doesn't give him what he expected. He and John have no silver or gold. And so Peter doesn't meet the man's expectations. But what he does is he goes beyond his expectations and gives him something better. And here's the point. What we receive in Jesus' name, it isn't what we expect. It isn't the thing we naturally believe we need. Right? This man's miracle comes it comes as a surprise. But what follows this miracle is the greater surprise. It's the bigger shock. And as we'll see in more detail next week, after the miracle, Peter enters the temple. He explains that the man was healed by faith in Christ. And now what do you think everyone expected or was hoping that Peter would do next, right? If you had a bum shoulder or an aching knee, you might have expected Peter, might have been hoping maybe he'll, maybe he'll take away my pain. But that's not what Peter offers. He offers forgiveness. See, he presents them with the way that their sins can be blotted out by repenting and turning in faith. And this is the surprise. This is the shock and this is the scandal. By turning in faith to the man that was recently crucified. And you think about where Peter's saying all this. He's in a holy place, right? He's in the temple. And it's the afternoon hour of prayer. So he is surrounded by religious men. These, these are devout Jews. And it's probably the second time that they were at the temple that day. They had probably given alms as they came through the beautiful gate. But at the end of the chapter, Peter says to all of these religious Men, that Christ was raised and sent to them first to bless them by turning every one of them from their wickedness. See, that's the beauty of the gospel. You can preach it in a Bible study and you can preach it in a jail cell because we both, we all need the same thing. You see, on your list, Right? And we all have one. Of the things you believe you need, where is being saved from your wickedness? 
See, at the temple that day, I wonder what prayers some of those men were hoping God would answer. Right? Like the lame man, they came that day with their own expectations, as do we. And whatever those expectations were, Peter blew them out of the water. They could receive the forgiveness of their sins through the one that they had scorned and rejected and sent to the cross. So friends, what expectations did you bring here this morning? Right, the lame man expected alms. There's nothing, nothing wrong, nothing sinful about that. Right, and many of us, we come to church with expectations, right, that aren't inherently bad. We hope for some physical healing. We want things at work to improve. We want our marriage to be happier. We want our children to be safe and flourish. Nothing wrong with praying for God to meet those expectations. But the miracle here is to convict that what really troubles our lives is our sin. It is our wickedness that needs to be forgiven. It's the thing we wouldn't naturally ask for. It's a gracious gift. And it's a gift that's needed for those who've scorned and rejected their creator. And finally, this miracle calls us. Right? It calls us to let go of our names. You see, this miracle is the beginning of trouble for the apostles because they can't quit speaking about the name of Jesus. Right? And eventually, they are arrested and, and beaten, and they're warned by the religious leaders not to speak or teach anymore in the name, the name that healed a man lame from birth. And at the end of this whole ordeal, after being arrested, after being warned, after being beaten, we're told the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Right, here's the question. What kind of person puts their name at risk for Jesus? The world would ask, what kind of character defect must one have to willingly take abuse for the name of Christ? And we might be tempted to say, ah, it's for the naturally brave. But here's what we know. The apostles weren't naturally brave or courageous. They all deserted Jesus when he got arrested. But here we see the apostles are rejoicing when they're arrested and beaten. And so the question is, what changed? Right? How did these men go from protecting their necks to putting their necks on the line for Jesus? It's because Jesus didn't desert the cross. 
right? He didn't flee to save his life. You see how often we're running from the threat of punishment? You see, when they abandoned Jesus, they did so because they didn't want to face the consequences of being associated with him. But what did Jesus do on the cross? He didn't merely associate with us. He represented our sin. He became our sin. He became your anger. He became your lust. He became your jealousy, your greed, your idolatry, your self-centeredness, your blasphemy. Right? He took the punishment we deserve. He didn't merely take a beating. He took the fullness of God's wrath against our wickedness. You see, we can let go of our names. We can stop being so obsessed with our reputations. We can stop always speaking about ourselves. We can stop boasting. We can stop lying. We can stop trying to appear great in someone's eyes and start speaking more about Christ because he died to make our names beautiful, to make them blameless, to take away our guilt, to forgive our past, to forgive our present, to forgive our future. Right? You see, in his name, you are whole. Right? You are healed. And your reputation with the Father is intact. Right? He sees you as he sees his son. And nothing, nothing can move him off of that. You know, in high school, yes, all those years ago, I lived and worked and worked very hard to see my name on our school's record board. And it got up there, just not for very long. You see, our names won't endure through our achievements. People will forget our names. It only takes a couple of generations to be forgotten. But if you give yourself to Jesus, if you come to him, I promise you, he won't forget your name. And he won't erase it from his book. And if you know and you believe that you count to the one whose name is exalted above all things, what might you do for him? Right? How might it change the way you live and speak? It might even lead, if it's required, it might even lead you to suffer a little dishonor from the hands of men. Men who can never tarnish your reputation with the one who loved you and gave himself for you. 
Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we, we praise your name. We give you thanks for what you have done on our behalf. We ask that you would offer us the grace, the mercy, and the help to do everything, to every word and deed, representing you well. We ask in your grace and kindness. Amen.